Welcome to the ACC Podcast. We're honored that you took some time out of your day to listen to our weekly message. We know that everyone is currently operating in a new normal as we are all experiencing some life-altering challenges during this difficult time in our world. We hope that these messages offer some reassurance and it reminds you that our hope does not lie in man, but in God and his plan for all of us. If you have any questions about ACC, like our core beliefs, where we are located, or other key information, check out our website, anacorduschristian.church. That's anacorduschristian.church. You can contact us directly through our website or by phone or email. We look forward to hearing from you. As for now, take some time to sit down, get comfortable, and enjoy the message. Good morning. My name is Brian Nelson, and I'm the youth minister here at ACC. I'm excited that I have the privilege of sharing a message with you this morning. Before I begin, I do want to remind you of just a couple things. Uh, First of all, at the end of our service, we will be, for those of you that desire to do so, taking communion together. And so this may be a good opportunity for you to go ahead and prepare for that. Um, Also, this is typically the time in our service where we would take tithes and offerings. And so for those of you that desire to give, uh, there are two ways that you can do that. Uh, The first way is just to mail um, your check into the church office, or if you prefer, you can give online. And uh, you can go to our website, and there's a a place for giving there, or you can go to the link, which is anacorduschristian.church slash give. And so those are the two ways that you can give if you want to. The last time that I spoke with you was about a month ago, where I shared with you that I'd recently been diagnosed with at least what appears to be multiple sclerosis. Um, Since that time, I have received a ton of just cards and texts and emails and, and even phone calls just encouraging me, telling me you're praying for me. And I just wanted to take a moment and say, how appreciative I am of that, how much it's encouraged me, uh, and how much uh, I love you guys for, for all the support that you've given me during this time. Uh, just to give you a quick update on things, um, I think last time I talked to you about fatigue and, and also about just a, kind of a brain fog. It was making it hard to think. And, and I really am grateful that since I've talked to you last, those two things have, have dramat- dramatically improved gotten way better. I I feel in those areas like almost back to normal as far as my energy level, as far as just my clarity of thought. And so I'm really grateful for that. Uh, I am still experiencing symptoms. Um, Most of them I'd previously talked to you about. Uh, I think the most constant one is is just the distorted vision that I have. Um, That stays with me for the most part, but I I have started kind of adjusting to it to a degree. in addition to that, I guess it's, my body honestly just does weird things. It, it's, it's, it's hard to describe. Sometimes I can feel almost normal. And then just like that, uh, other times it just seems like my body goes haywire. Uh, so for, for example, kind of give you a picture of this. I was here on Thursday uh, preparing uh, for my message and writing. It was about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And one of the symptoms I get a lot of times, especially um, it's been more consistent, has been like neck spasms. And, and it'll give me like um, just tightness in my jaw. It'll give some pretty severe headaches. And, and so I'm, I'm working here on Thursday. It's about 5 o'clock. And all of a sudden, my neck and jaw just tighten up. And so for about 45 minutes or so, I've, I'm just dealing with a headache. And, and then that kind of went away. 
And then right after that, I, I started just not feeling right. And, and another symptom I get is a lot of times at night, I'll, I'll get flush where my, my face will go red and I'll feel just feverish and a little bit feverish and achy. And so that kind of came on after my neck <laughs> felt better. And that lasted for about 30 minutes. And then after that kind of went away, my hands started having strange sensations and, and feeling weird and, and kind of feeling weak. And, and that lasted for a little bit and then that went away. And so like within the course of an hour and a half, I've kind of experienced the gamut of symptoms. And, and that's, that's kind of, that's kind of how things are. You know, it's, it's, I think that's been the hardest aspect of all of this for me to handle is just the anxiety I get over the uncertainty of everything. And it's not just all the unknowns about the future, but just the uncertainty that comes like with each day, even moment to moment, not knowing what to expect. And dealing, dealing with the unknown, I mean, it can be scary. And here's the thing is I know that I'm not the only one that is dealing with the unknowns of the future. Um, we are currently living through what I would consider maybe the most uncertain time in history as far as our history is concerned. And so many people are just dealing with questions and concerns about the future, whether it's their health, whether it's finances, uh, family, and, and what that's going to look like, or even just the, what life is going to look like when this storm finally passes. And the question I've been wrestling with is the question I think a lot of people have actually been wrestling with, and it's this. How do you experience peace in times of uncertainty? I mean, how do you experience peace when like everything just feels up in the air? And I think that it's during times like these, it helps to be able to hold on to things that are certain. Um, things that don't change. I know those can be few and far between, but when you find these certainties in life, they, they can act like anchors for the soul. And, and as I was looking at Daniel 2, and I've been studying it, uh, just in my own journey, I've been reminded of three certainties that have really brought me peace during this time. Uh, and I, I want to share those with you this morning. But before we get into the text, I just want to take a moment and say how grateful I am to Mike. Uh, he did an amazing job last week covering Daniel 2. I don't know how he did it because there's so much detail and depth and the text is so long, but he, he covered it in a way that was clear and he covered everything. And, and I was pretty amazed at, at how well he did. And so it really freed me up to be able to go the direction I'm going today. And I just wanted to say how much I appreciated all the work that he did last week. Um, for just for preparing, you know, for this week. In looking at this chapter, uh, Daniel 2, one of the first things that jumped out at me as I was studying it was a really interesting contrast in the first half of the chapter. You, you've got two men whose situations honestly couldn't be more different except for the fact that they both share a crisis of uncertainty. They're both experiencing crisis. And as we begin reading and, and looking at each man and looking at the crisis they experience, I want you to look for two things. Uh, I want you to try to answer two questions. And the first question is this. As you look at each man, look at the, the challenge and the crisis they experience, how does each man respond? 
How does each man respond to their crisis? That's the first thing I want you to try to answer. And then the second question I want you to think about is, why do you think they respond the way that they do? And so as we get into it, as we start reading, uh, just be looking for those two questions and see if you can answer them. Now, I'm going to be reading from the message translation just because I like the way it tells the story. And so you can follow along and, and we'll see these two men in, their, in the crisis they face. In the second year of his reign, King Nebuchadnezzar started having dreams that disturbed him deeply. He couldn't sleep. He called in all the Babylonian magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and fortune tellers to interpret his dreams for him. When they came and lined up before the king, he said to them, I had a dream that I can't get out of my mind, and I can't sleep until I know what it means. The fortune tellers speaking in the Aramaic language said, Long live the king. Tell us the dream and we will interpret it. The king answered the fortune tellers, This is my decree. If you can't tell me both the dream itself and the interpretation, I'll have you ripped to pieces limb from limb and your homes torn down. But if you tell me both the dream and its interpretation, I'll lavish you with gifts and honors. So go to it. Tell me the dream and its interpretation. They answered, if it please your majesty, tell us the dream, and then we'll give you the interpretation. But the king said, I know what you're up to. You're just playing for time. You know you're up a tree. You know that if you can't tell me my dream, you're doomed. I see right through you. You're going to cook up some fancy stories and confuse the issue until I change my mind. Nothing doing. First, tell me the dream. Then I'll let, let you know that you're, then I'll know that you're on the up and up with the interpretation and not just blowing smoke in my eyes. The fortune teller said, nobody anywhere can do what you ask. And no king, great or small, has ever demanded anything like this from any magician, enchanter, or fortune teller. And then I want you to pay attention to this part. This is key. They said, what you're asking is impossible unless some god or goddess should reveal it. And they don't hang around with people like us. That set the king off. He lost his temper and ordered the whole company of Babylonian wise men killed. When the death warrant was issued, Daniel and his companions were included, and they were also marked for execution. So let's take a moment to summarize. Nebuchadnezzar's had a dream, and he doesn't know what it means. He obviously fears that it could be something bad, and based on the dream, I'm thinking he probably thinks it's it has to do with him losing his kingdom. And I can just imagine the questions that might be just rolling through his mind. You know, will he be defeated by another nation? Will there be an assassination attempt on his life? Uh, maybe someone in his own court is plotting against him. Who can he trust? Maybe some of his wise men themselves are plotting against him. And his fear of what he doesn't know and his inability to find answers is consuming him to the point that he can't sleep. But Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man in the world. He's got untold resources at his disposal, an entire kingdom worth. If anyone could have this problem solved, surely it's him. But there's only one problem. His resources aren't enough to give him the answers he's looking for. So that brings us to that question we were talking about. How does Nebuchadnezzar respond? 
his desperation turns him, him into a disturbed, angry, irrational monster who's willing to annihilate an entire section of his kingdom, the best and the brightest, and many of whom were completely innocent and uninvolved in the matter. And then here's the deeper question. Why do you think he responds the way he does? I mean, there could be a lot of, of different reasons why he's a king and kings back in this day kind of acted crazy, but I think there's more to it than that. Here's what I think. I think Nebuchadnezzar is a man who's not accustomed to having problems in his life that he can't deal with on his own. But the unfortunate truth is there are some problems that can't be solved with the resources of this world. It doesn't matter how powerful you are or how wealthy you are or how smart you are. There will come a point, I believe, in all our lives where the resources that we possess are not enough to meet the demands that are being placed on our lives. Probably in this case, it seems like this may be the first time Nebuchadnezzar has encountered that reality. And so I want you just kind of keep that image of Nebuchadnezzar, his desperation, his irrationality in the, in the back of your mind as we move ahead in the chapter and we look at the second man and the crisis that he encounters. And then we'll compare them both. Again, look for how he responds and why he responds the way he does. So we're in verse 14. This is what it says. When Arioch chief of the royal guards was making arrangements for the execution, Daniel wisely took him aside and quietly asked what was going on. I mean, why, why this all of a sudden? After Arioch filled in the background, Daniel went to the king and asked for a little time so that he can interpret the dream. So just for a second, imagine unexpectedly finding out you're going to be executed. How would you respond? I know how I would respond, and it wouldn't be very, very pretty. I think this qualifies as a crisis, even probably more so than not understanding a dream. And yet, look at how Daniel responds. How does he respond? With, he's, with calmness, with wisdom. There's a peace that he demonstrates in the face of extreme crisis that, that leaves me just wondering, honestly, when I read this, how? How is he able to respond this way? I mean, I really, I really want to know because the, the truth is the moments in my life where I've experienced crisis, I've honestly resembled Nebuchadnezzar way more than Daniel. I mean, I'm no stranger to anger, irrationality, and desperation. And so I, I, I was thinking to myself as I'm reading this, how does Daniel respond this way? And maybe there's a key or a clue in, in the rest of the chapter that will help answer this. And, and I think there is. So let's finish reading and see if we can find it. It says in verse 17, Daniel went home and told his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, what was going on. He asked them to pray to the God of heaven for mercy in solving the mystery so that the four of them wouldn't be killed along with the whole company of Babylonian wise men. Did you see that? Daniel's first instinct was to go to God. We're going to see this is his habit. Although he was in exile who has had pretty much everything stripped from his life, his, his family, his culture, his security, he still knew what it was to experience the presence of God in his life. Daniel believed that God was actively present in his life and circumstances. He wasn't, God wasn't some disinterested deity 
like the Babylonians believed. And so when Daniel experiences crisis, he's able to experience peace because he has the presence of God in his life. Compare that with Nebuchadnezzar, the man who had access to all the resources that the world had to offer, but none of the resources of God. I think this is the first certainty. This is at least the first certainty that I read that really brought peace to me, and that is the presence of God. You see, for those of us who have Christ, we have the presence of God in our lives. This world may strip things away from us, but we can never lose God's presence in our lives. He will always walk with us and we will never be alone. One of the, the verses, the chapters that has brought a lot of peace to me over the past several months has been Psalm 23. And there's a, and there's a place in it where it says, even though I walk through the darkest valleys, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You see, with, with God's presence, comes resources that surpass human understanding. There's peace and wisdom and strength and joy and hope that can't be explained by the things of this world. And as Christ followers, we may suffer and struggle, but we will never do so alone. The second certainty that I was reminded of in Daniel 2 is the fact that God is in control. As Daniel and his friends seek God's guidance for insight into Nebuchadnezzar's dream, God reveals to Daniel both the dream and the interpretation. And in response, Daniel prays this prayer of thanksgiving. And this prayer is like the theological center of the whole chapter, meaning it's, it's, it's what you're supposed to get out of it. It's, it's what, if, if you don't get anything else out of the chapter, you need to understand this. And, and with his prayer... Daniel starts speaking about the nature of God. And this is what he says. He says, blessed be the name of God forever and ever. He knows all, does all. He changes the seasons and guides history. He raises up kings and also brings them down. The idea is that God is sovereign and he is in complete control of the world and its direction. And this is just further emphasized really in the rest of the chapter as Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar's dream and interprets it. See, if you remember from last week, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it consisted of a statue or, or more precisely an image that was made of, up of different metals. You had the head of gold, you had the chest and the arms of silver, you had the belly and hips of bronze, legs of iron, and then you had feet of clay and iron, like a mixture of ceramic and iron. And each metal represented a world empire of history. And the, the most striking feature of the dream, at least to me, was that God gave Nebuchadnezzar, uh, as far as, as the, the interpretation of it, was how these world empires will eventually meet their end. And I, I, I like the way, again, the message translation puts it. Uh, it says this, while you were looking, he's talking to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel is, while you were looking at this statue, a stone cut out of a mountain by an invisible hand hit the statue, smashing its iron ceramic feet. Then the whole thing fell to pieces. Iron, tile, bronze, silver, and gold smashed to bits. It was like scraps of old newspapers in a vacant lot in a hot, dry summer, blown every which way by the wind, scattered to oblivion. But the stone that hit the statue 
became a huge mountain dominating the horizon. This was your dream. And then as Daniel's offering the interpretation of the dream, he actually elaborates on the significance of the stone as God's kingdom. And this is what he says. He says, but throughout the history of these earthly kingdoms, the God of heaven will be building a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will this kingdom ever fall under the dominion of another. In the end, it will crush the other kingdoms and finish them off and come through it all standing strong and eternal. It will be like the stone cut from the mountain by the invisible hand that crushed the iron, the bronze, the ceramic, the silver, and the gold. The great God has let the king know what will happen in the years to come. So if you remember, as Mike described last week, God was going to use these world empires as a vehicle to accomplish his overall purpose of reestablishing a relationship with humans. And he was going to reestablish this relationship through the building of an ultimate kingdom. And when you look back at these world empires, you know, what you typically see is a history of selfish and greedy and violent humans making choices that really flood the world with chaos and destruction. And yet through it all, there's a pattern, a pattern of God taking destructive choices of human beings and weaving them together and redeeming them to prepare the way for his kingdom and set the stage for Jesus, who I believe is that stone being described in this vision. To redeem something is essentially to give something that has no value, value. That's what God did. God is the one who redeems chaos to build something beautiful and life-giving and ultimate. And the greatest example of this is seen at the cross where God took what humans meant for death and he turned it into the ultimate source of life. And this is why this is a comfort to me. Because if God can redeem the seemingly ugly and terrible things of this world and create something beautiful and ultimate out of them, then he can certainly redeem the hardships of my life in the same way. The fact that my life is about more than just the here and now means there are bigger and more important things involved than just my present experience. In my life, I can probably expect to experience pain and loss, but in those moments, there's also the hope of redemption. And here's what that means. That means that none of the hard stuff that I experience and that you will experience will ever be wasted. It can all be used to create something meaningful and ultimate and being a part of building God's kingdom. Something that's way bigger than my individual experience and something that gives me a purpose and a reason for enduring. As I thought about all this, um, I couldn't help but think of Corey Tin Boone, who was a, someone who during the Holocaust was responsible for helping countless lives. And as a result of that, she and her family were put in a, a concentration camp. And <clears throat> during that time, she, she lost her sister. She went through all sorts of atrocities. And, and as the, after the experience was over and, 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 and she was out, um, she, she described, someone asked her about suffering and asked her about everything she endured. And, and her response was just, really awe-inspiring. She said she likened our experiences of pain and suffering to a cross stitch. 
And if you know what a cross stitch is, it's on one side, you have fabric that's been woven with thread and, and one side of it's a jumbled mess, but on the other side, it's usually a beautiful picture. And she's talked about how the stuff that we experience and the suffering that we see, we have no idea. It just looks like a jumbled mess of chaos to us, but we have no idea what's being woven together on the other side, the masterpiece that's being created. And, and I love that image because what that means is the fact, it's the fact that God is in control and that there will be a time where I may not understand everything going on right now, but on the other side of things, I will see how God used all of it to create something beautiful, uh, something that's, that's meaningful and something that's way better than I could have ever imagined. The fact that God is in control means I can trust him both with my present and with my future. The last certainty that I came across that, that really encouraged me in this text was this. Certainty number three is God does not change. World powers change. World events change. My circumstances will change. God does not change. The revelation struck me as I read Nebuchadnezzar's response to Daniel's interpretation. It's in verse 46. This is what it says. When Daniel finished, King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face in awe before Daniel. He ordered the offering of sacrifices and the burning of incense in Daniel's honor. He said to Daniel, your God is beyond question the God of all gods, the master of all kings. And as I read that and as I have that image of Nebuchadnezzar prostrate flat on the ground, bowing face down in front of Daniel. My mind was immediately reminded of, of really what's my favorite passage in all the Bible. It's first Samuel chapters three through seven. It's a, it's somewhat of an obscure passage. Uh, some people may not even be familiar with it, but my mind was taken there with this image. And let me explain, let me paint the picture and hopefully you'll see the connection between the two. The time during first Samuel, um, Chapter three is what many consider to be the darkest period in Israel's history. You see, the nation as a whole had almost completely forgotten God. Uh, they had turned their back on him. To give you an idea of just how bad things were, the priests who were supposed to be the spiritual leaders of and represent God to the people were blaspheming his name. They were stealing from him. They were bullying and threatening the people that would come to the temple. They were using their position to seduce women. I mean, these were the spiritual leaders. You can imagine what the rest of Israel was like during this time. And during all of this, Israel ended up going to battle with the Philistines. And the first day of the battle, the Israelites were completely routed. Like 4,000 men lost their lives. And as they're coming back to camp, the leaders of Israel are asking, why did the Lord bring defeat on us? And then together they came up with a plan. And they decided that they would bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle. Now, in case you're unfamiliar with the Ark of the Covenant, it was the most sacred piece of furniture in all of Israel. It was housed in the temple in the most holy the place called the Holy of Holies. And it, it was a chest that was, was gold, you know, a golden chest, essentially, that was, that represented the presence of God. So taking the Ark of the Covenant into battle was a pretty big deal since the Ark represented God's presence. 
Now, the problem with this decision was the motivation behind it. You see, the people, they were treating the ark like a lucky charm. They were basically trying to manipulate God. They figured that surely God would not allow the ark to be captured because it would be like God allowing himself to be captured. And so he wouldn't allow that. He would have to protect his honor. And they, they were trying to put God between a rock and a hard place. Unfortunately for them, they didn't know God very well because their plan backfired. God did allow the ark to be captured. And this is huge because, again, in allowing this, God is, in essence, allowing himself to be taken captive by the enemy. I can just imagine the Philistines parading God around their land as a spoil of war, like a captured king. There's no doubt he was certainly mocked and slandered as the Philistines exclaimed how superior their God Dagon was to the lowly Israelite God Yahweh. And then as a further insult, they put the ark in the temple of Dagon in front of Dagon as a way of showing how, again, how superior Dagon was. Think about it for a moment. The one true God, the creator of the universe, allowing himself to be thought of as a loser, allowing his name to be mocked and slandered. What would cause him to do something like this? As you read the rest of the passage and, and all the way through, you realize he did it to restore his relationship with a nation of people who had completely turned their back on him and tried to use him for their own personal gain. Now, the story continues, and this is really it's my favorite part. It's where it really gets good. Uh, the following day, the Philistines enter the temple of Dagon, and they find Dagon face down in front of the ark. So they set him back up. And then the next day, they go in the temple once again. And this time, Dagon, again, is flat on the floor, but his hands are cut off. And the hands were the symbol of power for a god. And so to have your hands cut off meant that you were powerless. Um, and here's Dagon, face down, prostrate in front of the ark, with his hands cut off, completely powerless. And then from that point on, every Philistine city that housed the ark was afflicted with deadly disease. And so they basically played hot potato with the ark and, and they would ship it from city to city. And each city that housed it couldn't get rid of it fast enough because it was just bringing death and destruction to them all. And, and so finally, out of desperation, the Philistines had to ship the ark back to Israel just to save themselves. God completely destroyed single-handedly the, the Philistines um, by their own choices. Now, as a result of all this, what we see is God's faithless people did repent and they turned back to him and, and, and in a renewed relationship. And this kickstarted one of the golden ages of, of Israel's history. Now think of all that in context to Daniel and in comparison to Daniel, right? In Daniel, what we see God's people have once again acted faithlessly. They've turned their back on him. And so God gives them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. But God doesn't turn his back on his people. He doesn't sever ties, which is what they deserved, which is what I would have done. Instead, God chose to be faithful to those who had been faithless towards him. Once again, God willingly chooses to endure humiliation as he identifies with his faithless people and experiences the shame and defeat with them. You have utensils from God's temple 
being placed in the temple of Marduk. And Marduk is touted as superior to Yahweh, Israel's God. And we ask the question again, why would God do this? And again, we find out he does it to restore the relationship with his people who had completely turned their back on him. And then once again, just like we saw in 1 Samuel, in the midst of captivity, God revealed his nature and power. But this time, he's not represented by an ark. He's represented by four young men who have been implanted into the heart of Babylon. And as God revealed his power through these young men, and Daniel is interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream like none of the other magicians or fortune tellers could, what was the result? Just like the Philistine god Dagon, King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face in awe before Daniel, saying to Daniel, your God is beyond question the God of all gods, the master of all kings. Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful person in the world, is face down before a Jewish exile, paying homage to Israel's God. Now, these are just two of the countless moments in Scripture that outline the unchanging nature of God. The conditions in our world, the circumstances in our lives, these things may be uncertain, but the character of God is certain. And he doesn't change. He is the one who faith is faithful to the faithless. He is the one who loves selflessly and sacrificially. The one who's willing to identify with his people, even to the point of taking their shame and humiliation on himself. And he's the one who fights his people's battles in order to rescue and restore them back into relationship. The pictures of God that we have seen both in first Samuel and Daniel too, they're, they're just merely snapshots foreshadowing God's ultimate revelation of himself that we see in Jesus. Jesus is the complete expression of God's willingness to identify with his faithless people and take on their shame and humiliation in order to once and for all rescue and restore them back into relationship with him. And Jesus is the ultimate manifestation of God's power to the world, which will one day result not just in a king or just some fake God bowing in submission, but every created being in heaven and on earth who has ever lived. Philippians 2 encaptures all of this. It says this, think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantage of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave and became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless obedient death and the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honored him far above anyone or anything ever so that all created beings in heaven and on earth, even those long ago dead and buried, will bow down in worship before Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is the master of all. 
to the glorious honor of God the Father. I mean, each, each truth that we've examined today finds its fulfillment in Jesus. He is the full and final expression of God's presence. He is the ultimate evidence of God's control over our world. And he is the complete embodiment of the unchanging nature of God's character. And he is our peace and hope and source of certainty in uncertain times. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us today. We want to remind you that we love you and God loves you. And you always have a place here at Anacortes Christian Church, even if it's virtually for now. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us if you need prayer or if you just need someone to talk to. Go in peace and have a wonderful week. We'll talk to you soon.